When I last I left you, I didn't give Scott Martin Luther. He's the fun one. I gave him the two hard ones, Melanchthon and Zwingli. Um, so he got to do a little bit of that. But we're going to go back to the fun stuff now because I get to teach. And, and uh, um, I started the lesson out this morning with an illustration. By the way, what you've got in front of you in your handout is probably two weeks' worth, almost two weeks' worth. Don't worry. We're not going to go till 1 o'clock. Uh, today. Uh, uh, I'll let you out in time to eat. I'm starving. Um, <clears throat> but uh, Jesus was asked a question. He was, he was asked this. He said, you know, John the Baptist and the Pharisees and all of those people, they fast and they're very rigorous with their, their spiritual walk. And we're looking at you and we're looking at your disciples and they just seem real happy and real giddy and they're not fasting and they're not acting nearly miserable enough. What gives? How are we supposed to think you're the Holy One? And Jesus said, well, my people are happy because I'm the bridegroom. When the bridegroom's with them, they're happy. By the way, he's still with us. We're still happy. And uh, uh, Jesus said, it may not fit the mold of what you're thinking religion should be, but you don't take uh, an old worn-out pair of Levi's and when they get a hole in them, go buy you a new pair of seven jeans and cut a patch out of the new seven jeans to sew onto the old Levi's. He says, you don't take new wine and put it into an old wineskin because when the fermentation starts, it's going to break the wineskin and it's going to burst out. When there's something new and vibrant and real, it doesn't always fit the mold of what is old and stale and crusty. And we've seen the way God has moved in the church and in Christian communities to make changes. We're going through changes here. That's not to say we were old and moldy and crusty. I hope we weren't. I don't think we were. But it's still a new freshness that changes some things. And there's part of us that don't like change. I do eat at the same restaurant every time. Becky is so sick, I come home, she says, what can I cook you for dinner? And it's the exact same thing I want every time I get back home. She says, well, can I cook something else? I said, why? You make that really good. <laughs> you know, why, why? Yeah, I guess if you're bored, you can cook my second favorite meal, but I'd rather eat my favorite meal. She says, you're a rep person. I said, aren't you glad? And she said, what do you mean? I said, I got the best wife in the world. I don't want anybody else. <laughs> But I'm here to tell you, God has moved in His church and in Christian communities to bring freshness. And that's what happened with Martin Luther. Martin Luther came at a time where the church needed something. And what Martin Luther provided to the church enabled David Fleming to preach his sermon this morning. Now, we're going to get back to the Catholic Church because what was horrible within the Catholic Church that we're talking about now needed not only some change, which Martin Luther, through God, provided, but we'll see that the Roman Catholic Church itself changed from what it was. And so a lot of the things that I point out about them then are not things that stayed constant. And I can certainly point to a lot of problems in the Protestant movement as well that need a fresh approach of God. So what I'm here to do is not to be anti-Catholic or to be pro-Lutheran or anti-Lutheran. I'm here to tell you history and let's try and be as biblical as we can in the process because that's our measuring stick, the Bible, for whatever we're faced with.
whether it's in faith or in, in life, okay? So, when we last had our story, Martin Luther had gone to the Wittenberg church door on October 31st, 1517. October 31st is famous because it is... No, it's Reformation Day. Okay, y'all sound like a bunch of pagans. Halloween! Now, it wasn't Reformation Day until he nailed the theses on the door. But once he did that, it's Reformation Day. So this October 31st, dress your kids up in their best Catholic garb and have a Reformation party. Let, give them a hammer and nails and scrolls and let them go bang stuff on the wall and then give them candy. Now, Martin Luther did this. Now, the reason he did it on October 31st is because November 1st was All Saints Day. So on October 31st, the day before All Saints Day, Martin Luther goes out and he nails 95 theses. Now what's a theses? It is a debate point. He says, these are 95 things I choose to debate anyone who wants to debate. It wasn't a bad thing to nail it on the church door. That's with a bulletin board. However, his was like huge compared to little three-by-five note cards of I'd like to get a job working in the garden. Okay? His was 95 points to debate on the eve of All Saints Day. All Saints Day was a very profitable day for the church. It was a day when relics would be set out. Now what are relics? We talked about this last time. Oh, some thought they had thorns from the actual cross of Christ. They're in Wittenberg. Some thought they had uh, a part of Jesus' beard. Some thought they had all sorts of bones and things from famous Christian saints. And so these relics would be put out. And you could pay kind of like the museum tour, and go and do homage to the relics and it take years off your purgatory time. Okay? Now, uh, that's a pretty good moneymaker. But Luther thought it was uh, anti-scriptural. And so he posted his theses. He wasn't fond of that and he wasn't fond of purchasing indulgences at the time. There was a John Tetzel who's going around selling indulgences. And basically, he would say, you know, you've got, any of you have anybody who you love who's dead? Well, everybody can raise their hands on that. He says, you know, they're probably spending time in purgatory. If you will spend money for this indulgence, the Pope has an ability like a banker to go into the vault of good deeds which has lots of extra good deeds in it because all of Jesus' good deeds are there and the Virgin Mary and all the saints. They've all accumulated extra good deeds that they didn't need. So we've got all these extra deeds and the Pope will dole them out and cut time off of your loved ones in purgatory. So you've got someone who's died. They're spending time in purgatory. Do you really want them there suffering? They're suffering. They're suffering bad. You can spring them. All you've got to do is pay. And Luther just thought that was abhorrent. So Luther speaks out against this. And when he does, it does not go unnoticed. The 95 Theses, Luther probably would have been burned at the stake and have gone nowhere if the printing press had not been invented in 1450. But we're 67 years into the printing press. And somebody takes Luther's theses that are in Latin, translates them into German, and spreads them like wildfire throughout Germany. Are like wildflowers. I don't know. They're springing up everywhere. And um, just spreads it. Okay? Now, 
the German people are in a time of national dis... Um, they, they're just not really all connecting well. They're looking for identity. This is 1517. What happened in 1492? Columbus sailed the ocean blue. The New World. Who's got New World Kingdom? Who, who's got New World interest? Spain, España, right? Portugal, Italy, Vasco da Gama and that crew. England, New England, right? How about Germany? <laughs> oh, I mean, eventually down like out I-10, some are going to settle in the late 18, early 1900s, but there's nothing like that yet. Okay, Shiner, Texas doesn't exist yet. So the Germans, the reason why is they don't really have a port. They don't have a bunch of navigators who are out there circumnavigating the globe. You've got a landlocked country by and large. And so they're looking for a national identity while France, who's got, you know, New Orleans springing up and Spain, who's got Mexico City and, and, and you, you've got all of these lands. So Germany's looking for a national identity. And Luther becomes their identity. And his theses get spread out. And, and, and it catches on like wildfire because there were always the politicians who did not like the money going over the Alps into Rome to the church. And then there are the people who are sitting there saying, why are we spending money to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome when our churches are falling apart? Why do we have to, if we have to buy indulgences, why does it have to go to the Pope? And so there's a fermented discontent there and Luther comes out and he puts these theses on the wall and it catches on like wildfire and the, the bishop over that area who owes a lot of money because he's recently purchased more bishopry from the Pope and he's got to pay it back. The bishop is very concerned because when Luther starts doing this, he's cutting into profits and he's cutting in on relic day. He's cutting in on uh, uh, indulgences. So these get sent to the Pope, Luther's 95 Theses. Now the Pope gets them, and when the Pope gets them, Pope Leo X, he's not real happy. At first it's almost like a little flea, though. We've got two different quotes from the Pope. Maybe neither one's authentic, but they certainly convey the attitude. One was, ah, Luther's a drunken German. He'll feel different when he's sober. Wittenberg was, after all, the beer-drinking capital of the world at the time. Out of the 400 and some odd houses, over half of them had licenses to brew beer in Wittenberg. And uh, unlike many Southern Baptists, Luther and others were not uh, uh, loath to drink. So there's no doubt that he was a consumer of the beverage. The other statement by the Pope was, Friar Martin is a brilliant chap and this whole fuss is due to the envy of the monks. You know, he's a young upstart, and what has happened is Luther's galvanized the newer generation, and all the young people are idolizing him, and all of a sudden, the University of Wittenberg is the hot school to go to because you can learn from the new guy, Martin Luther, who's really turning things upside down, and the old guard don't care too much about it, and they're just whining. But Leo decides, okay, well, we got to do something, and this guy is an upstart, and basically he is cutting into our money, so let's go ahead. We'll just get him arrested, sent down here, and burn him at the stake. <laughs> so the Pope sends a letter to the elector, that was his title, Frederick the Wise. Yes, it looks like Peter Ustinoff, but that's only because <laughs> Peter Ustinoff played him in the movie Luther, which is a very good movie that you ought to see. 
Frederick the Wise gets a letter from the Pope and says, I'm not turning Luther over to you. Pope says, you don't have to turn him over to me to burn at the stake. Just send him down to Rome. Let me talk to him. He is, after all, one of my monks. And Frederick the Wise says, I send him to you. He dies. I know that. So I'll tell you what. You want to talk to him, that's fine. You send someone up here to talk to him. But I'm not going to send one of my Germans to Italy. It's that national mentality I'm talking about. Okay? So the Pope says, all right, I'll send uh, my Cardinal Cajitan, or as we say in love, Cage Tan, um, <laughs> to fix things. So Cardinal Cajitan goes up there, Cage Tan, and uh, he goes up there with three purposes in mind. The Pope sends him and says, you've got three chores in front of you. Chore number one, you've got to rally the Germans for a crusade. We need to get some of that strong German blood down there fighting the Turks. Number two, you need to raise taxes for a crusade. So get the German nobility to agree that we can assess an additional tax and let's do that so we can fund our crusade. And oh, of course, number three, while you're there, get Luther to either recant or haul his tail down to Rome and we'll have a good old-fashioned burning. Okay? Now, that's the, the direction. Uh, Cajitan gets there. He tries to rally the Germans for a crusade. It doesn't work. He tries to raise taxes for a crusade. They ain't paying. So he's down to point number three before he has to go back and say, gee, I was not very successful. That is to get Luther to recant. So Luther is brought before him. Luther's told he doesn't want to hear anything. What your job is to fall prostate in front of him. When he tells you to get up, you get up and you say one word and one word only. Revoco. I recant. So Luther's told this. This is what he's told to do. And uh, this is his church. I mean, he's a monk, okay? He's, he's there. So Luther goes in front of him. And Luther is in front of him for three days. The first day Luther goes, he falls flat on his face, prostate, just as he's been told. Cardinal Cajitan's got to feel like, okay, man, I've messed up on the other two, but at least I've got this one. This is going to work. Cajitan says, uh, arise, Friar Luther. So Luther stands up. He says, do you have anything to say to me? And Luther's supposed to say, I mean, this has all been scripted out ahead of time. Luther's been told what to do to save his life. Luther's supposed to say, revoco, I recant. And instead, Luther says, you know, I really think y'all are wrong on purgatory. <laughs> and this whole merit bank idea, it's just wrong. And I can't recant until you show me in Scripture why it's right. And Caetan says, well, it doesn't have to be in Scripture. Look, we have this declaration by the Pope. Luther says, but that's not Scripture. And Caetan says, well, who do you think interprets Scripture? The Pope. So if the Pope says it, it's Scripture. Luther says, no, 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 you don't get to interpret Scripture only. I can interpret scripture. At which point, Cahitan says, that's ludicrous. If everybody starts interpreting scripture, the church will dissolve into thousands of parts. You have to have one who interprets scripture, and that's the pope. Luther says, no, 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 no. I, 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 then, then show me with reason, show me with scripture, show me which scripture he's interpreting and how he gets there. Because that's not what this is about. This is about something totally different. So after three days of this, Cardinal Cajitan's about to pull his red thing off his hat. I mean, his head. Because he's so frustrated. 
And he says, Luther, I want to hear one more word out of you. It's revoco. You say revoco or you don't say anything else. So Luther says, okay, bye, and leaves. Cajitan was not successful. So Cajitan reports back and says uh, uh, to Frederick the Wise, um, hey, okay, here are my papers. Here's the letter from the Pope. Send Luther with me. We're headed back to Rome. Frederick the Wise says, no, 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 no. Not right now. He's one of mine. I can't just let my German citizens leave. Pretty soon I wouldn't have any. So he's got to stay here. And he's doing this real cool Peter Ustinoff thing. And um, <clears throat> so, so then, at this point, right, the Pope says, well, what are we going to do? And Caetan says, what are we going to do? And they said, well, all right, well, what we got to do, there's too much national support for Luther, so let's humiliate Luther publicly. Let's start draining away his support. We'll set up this big debate. We'll bring in our best. We're not sending Cardinal Caetan. The Germans can't even pronounce his name. They don't like the idea that this Italian upstart's coming up here doing this anyway. We're going to get our best German debater. Then Luther can't play this German card. So a debate is set up, and Luther and his uh, protege, Melanchthon, whom you all have heard about and learned, go to debate the great German John Eck. Now, I want to give you the eyewitness report of what these guys look like and sound like, because this is really good. This is eyewitness. Martin is of middle height, emaciated from care and study, so you can almost count his bones through his skin. He's in the vigor of manhood, has a clear, penetrating voice. He's learned and has the scripture at his fingers in. He knows Greek and Hebrew sufficiently to judge the interpretations. He's affable and friendly, in no sense dour or arrogant. He's equal to anything. In companies, he's vivacious, jocose, always cheerful and happy. That word's been ruined. Always cheerful and happy, no matter how hard his adversaries press him. Everyone chides him for the fault of being a little too insolent in his reproaches. He could be kind of stingy um, and more caustic than is prudent for an innovator in religion or becoming to a theologian. Now, Eck, the other guy. In this corner, Martin Luther. In this corner, John Eck. He's a heavy, square-set fella with a full German voice supported by a hefty chest. And German speaks best with a full voice. Supported with a square jaw, square-set fellow with a full German voice. He'd make a tragedian, which is an actor. Or, and that's like pre-microphone actors. So this guy was projecting, okay? Um, or a town crier. But his voice is rather rough than clear. <laughs> His eyes and his mouth and his whole face remind one more of a butcher than a theologian. And that's who's taken on Luther. <laughs> so we have here Martin Luther. Hey, I speak Greek. I speak Hebrew. I'm happy. I'm vivacious and in a good mood. And we have, yes, but you're beating at the book of butcher. And I'm going to annihilate you. And he knew his scriptures really well. So the first debate is uh, whether or not uh, they're going to have anybody take the minutes of the debate. And uh, this, is, this is a scene from the debate, except it's about 300 years after the debate. And then the debate starts getting hot and heavy on the real issues finally. And the real issues, um, Eck, the papacy, 
is vital to a united Christendom. Luther. Oh, no, Christians can stay united. Whoops, I'm on this side, sorry. Can stay united under different heads, just like different nations dwell in peace. Okay, that was not like a really winner point historically for Luther, because <laughs> nations don't really dwell together in peace very well at all. But ultimately, neither does the church. So he was right in a wrong way. Um, then X says, uh, yes, the nations war, but... There's one faith, one Lord Jesus, and one vicar of Christ, the Pope, one pontiff. And Luther says, yeah, but that vicar part's not in the Bible. Okay? So then X says, you are guilty of the errors of Wycliffe and Huss. And by the way, if you weren't here for our classes on Wycliffe and Huss, here is a good plug for our website, www.biblical-literacy.com, where you can download not only the lessons, but the visuals and the... the, the Okay, you're guilty of the errors of Wycliffe and Huss. Luther, eh, I'm just teaching the Bible. If Wycliffe and Huss had part of the Bible on their side, God bless them. I don't care who else is teaching the Bible. I'm teaching the Bible. Heck, yeah, well, if you want to teach the Bible, purgatory's in there. In 2 Maccabees 12.45, they're praying for the dead. If there's nothing you can commute in the dead sentence in purgatory, why are you praying for them? Luther says... Eh, that's the Apocrypha. That's not the Bible anyway. So, I mean, this is the fight. Well, after 18 days, the Duke who's been hosting this affair says, Enough. This is pathetic. I'm sick of this. Everybody go home. I need my house. Okay? So, debate's over. They go. Now, at this point, Luther goes international. Okay? Zwingli's getting his stuff over in Switzerland. Luther's starting to cause a lot of trouble. The printing press is churning this stuff out. It's putting it out in German, the language of the people. It's putting it out in Latin, the language of the scholars. It's going everywhere, and the heat starts going up, way up. Because from that debate, over the next year, Luther starts writing voraciously. And he's not writing uh, real soft and easy. He's writing, like, in your face. Okay? Five tracks he puts out over about a seven-month period that turn the world upside down. Tract one, the Sermon on Good Works. David could not have preached what he preached this morning, but for Martin Luther. And so much of what he said echoes Martin Luther on this sermon. Martin Luther was still preaching, but he'd also produced it in a tract form so that it could go out. Now, there were some people complaining about Luther. Luther's justification by faith, right? There are some people complaining. Here's what they're saying. Based on Luther's preaching, we ought to sin all we want. If you don't have to do something for your salvation, then just sin all you want. If you're saved by faith, if you're saved by grace, and it's not works-based, then why can't you just sin all day long? Luther's going to make us all a bunch of sinners. Okay? Now, I don't know about you, that should ring a bell. Because this is the same criticism people had of Paul. And Paul, even in Romans 6.1, says, okay, so now that I've explained we're saved by faith, are you one of the ones asking the question, what then? Shall we just sin all the more so that grace may abound? Hey, we're saved by grace. The more we sin, the more grace there is. We're helping God out by sinning. Making him showing, I want to show God to be very graceful. I think I'll go sin some more. Paul says, should we have that attitude? He says, no. This is a good sign Luther's preaching what Paul's preaching. The people are responding to Luther the same way they were responding to Paul. 
by the people. I don't mean the converted. I mean the critics. So he says in this title, in this sermon, the Sermon on Good Works, in this first tract he did, Luther preaches and he says the following, the first, the highest, the most precious of all works, all good works, is faith in Jesus. And he used the John 6, 28 and 29 passage where the, the, the Jesus is asked the question by the, by the rich young ruler, what should I be doing to do the works of God? And Jesus' response, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom... He has sent. Faith, that's the work. I would go a bit further than Luther and say Jesus took a plural. What should I be doing to do the works of God? Plural. And said, let's take it to a singular. The work, singular, of God is this. Then Luther says, the best human deeds, you take the best thing anybody's doing, and if they're not doing it out of faith in Christ, then it has no merit before God. It's nothing. The best human need. You can go out and be the nicest guy in the world. You can go out and do all the most wonderful things in the world. You can drive the streets looking for people with flat tires to change them. You can feed the sick and the hungry. You can clothe the naked and the poor. But if you don't have faith in Jesus, these good works don't add up to anything. Because they never merit God's love. Then Luther goes on. Luther says, now, there's a problem in our society, he says. We've got sin categorized. We've got categories of deeds. We've got good deeds. Oh, the good deeds. Fasting. That's a very good deed. It shows you very holy. Praying. Oh, my knees are worn out. I've been praying. I'm fasting and I'm praying. Aren't I holy? And some of the really holy, they go to monasteries. And then there's the mundane, who just eat, sleep, and work. And then there's the sinful, the gluttons, hey, 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 the slothful, lazy, and the cheating in business. Luther says, you know, that's not right. He says, there is no such thing as a mundane deed. There's not this neutral category. Eating, sleeping, and working, they belong over here if you're doing them in faith. If you do your deeds in faith, it is just as holy to eat as it is to fast. It is just as holy to sleep as it is to pray. It is just as holy to work as it is to be a monk or a nun. This is what Luther says. And it totally changes society. Luther's scripture for it was John 8, 29. Jesus said, I always do the things that please God. Did Jesus eat? Did Jesus sleep? Did Jesus work? Yes. So those things must be pleasing to God. And that's what Luther says. The key, he says, is to do everything out of faith in Christ. That's the key. And so what this does is he says, a life that does good deeds that proceeds from faith is like a house that's built on a rock. And any other good deeds, they're going to come from arrogance and self-righteousness, and you may feel yourself built up, but your house is built on, you've read Luther. Luther then goes in this sermon and says, let's look at the Ten Commandments. And if you read the Ten Commandments, you'll find out we're all violating all ten of them, the way Luther taught it. 
because he didn't just look at the letter of the law, he looked at the spirit of the law. Like commandment number one, don't worship any other gods. Luther says this means since I alone am God, this is God talking, you must place all your confidence, trust, and faith in God alone, no one else. Luther says, any of us that ever put our faith and trust and confidence in anybody or anything, our money, our, 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 our possessions, or anything else, or government, or spouses, or parents, or if you put your faith and confidence in anything else, you violated the first commandment. So he marches through all of this. Now, what does this do? This turns contemporary thinking on its head. Um, yeah, on its head. Because the society had been built around the idea that there was a spiritual elite. And what, what Luther is saying is the spiritual elite, the monk who's sitting there copying manuscripts or whatever, is on the same equal footing as the guy who's working in the garden. David Fleming's not holier than any of us. It's like he said. That was... That was radically different, radically different. Now, he writes a second tract entitled The Papacy at Rome. This is not destined to be a bestseller in Italy. <laughs> oh, yeah? Here's what he says. He says, as it's developed and as it's practiced, the papacy is an institution of man. It's not an institution of scripture. Oh, don't get me wrong. Scripture does say that there's to be an elder, a bishop, a pastor over the church. And it's right to have a bishop over the church at Rome. And that church may have started a bunch of other churches. And that pastor or bishop may be responsible for other churches. But the way it's developed, it's become an institution of man. The Pope doesn't have the, the keys that, that, that he claims through Peter, is what Martin Luther's saying. Well, now, how was this received at Rome? Because they got a copy of it. Not well. The Pope calls together... Uh, leaders from the, the three different orders of monks, including uh, the Augustinian order that Martin's in, the Franciscan order, the Benedictine order. He calls in scholars. He brings John Eck down from, from Germany and says, you debated him there, butcher breath. What do you think? And, and they had this huge, for days they talked about it. And there were three big issues. What are we going to do with Luther? And what are we going to do with his ideas? Because they're out. They're out and all over the place. And what are we going to do with these writings that are going everywhere? And some people say, well, let's just condemn him to hell right now. Bam. <laughs> do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go directly to hell. Take him to the basement. Put him in the chute. And send him. Others say, well, maybe we ought to give him a trial. And then others say, no, nah, let's issue a bull. That's a, a declaration from the Pope that has the effect of law. And uh, I know what you're thinking. Beware of the bull. You're right. The bull is dangerous. But that's what Leo does. He issues a bull on June 15, 1520. You can go to Rome and see the actual bull. I say the actual bull. They made a lot of copies because each one has to have the, like, the ring and all of this kind of stuff to show it's authentic. Then two people are selected to take the bull and to go back to Germany because well, they don't know where Luther is. The bull says that Luther has to appear within 60 days of the posting of the bull in his area, his district. So whenever they find the district where Luther is, they post the bull up. Luther's got 60 days. If not, he's an outlaw, and you can kill him on sight. 
He's got 60 days to appear. And by the way, 42 of his writings that we know of right now, they are officially condemned and you all need to have Luther book burning days. And every community needs to have a book burning day, set it aside, build a bonfire, and everybody brings out his writings and everybody burns them. Okay? This is from the Pope. This is a law. It's been passed. And one guy goes in East Germany and one guy goes in West Germany. And they've got their full collection of these and they go town to town posting them. Some of the book burnings work well. Some of the book burnings don't because the Germans aren't in the mood to burn their books. They kind of like Luther and they kind of like what the books have to say. And in a few towns, the guys who are posting the bull, they get run out of town. There's this national ferment that says, stop it growing. Meanwhile, Luther is sitting around writing his most radical piece yet, addressed to the German nobility. This is going to change the history of the church. And I really invite you to come back next week and let me tell you about it. Points for home. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Righteousness does not come from what you do. Righteousness comes from what Jesus did. Righteousness is, is a judicial word. And I'm sensitive to it right now. Because I'm in trial. Righteousness is the, the declaration of not guilty. And it does not come because any of us have earned it. Not only does it not come from earning, you don't keep it by earning it. I know some who are quick to say, yes, you're saved by faith, but you keep it through works. No, you don't. It's faith from first to last, Paul says in Romans. The righteous shall live by faith. The Ephesians passage that David quoted, and we'll go ahead and throw all, ten, uh, all 8, 9, and 10 up on the wall because he's right. There's a tendency to leave 10 out. It's by grace you've been saved. Grace, that's a Greek word, charis. It means, and, and Paul puts the word the in front of it. For by the grace, the gift. Have you ever heard grace means unmerited favor? Okay, it does in this sense. It's a noun. It, it means a favor someone did for you that you didn't deserve. Grace means a gift, a favor that someone did for you and I that we don't deserve. What favor has been done for us that we don't deserve? What one singular noun favor? Jesus Christ dying for our sins. And that's what Paul's saying. When he says, for by grace, he doesn't just mean this gracious God who's just for kind and forgiving. He's not talking about an attribute of God. He's talking about an event in history, a present, a gift, a favor that was done for you and I that we don't deserve. The Jesus dying for our sins, by the grace of God, by the death of Christ on our behalf, we've been saved through faith. This isn't something from ourselves. It's a gift. He uses the other Greek word, doron, to make sure people understand. So he's used both Greek words for gifts here. One's translated grace, the other's gift. But it's, it's by the grace of God. It's a gift. It's a present that's been done for you. So nobody can boast. Nobody says, I'm better than anybody else. We're all on an equal footing. If we're saved, we're all saved by the same gift, which was done just as much for you as it was for me. Jesus didn't have to just half die for some of us because we're that good. 
He fully died for all of us. And that's how we're saved by faith. We're not saved by works. No one's boast. We are God's workmanship. We're where He's working. We're created in Christ to do the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And this is what Luther's saying in his, his sermon on good works. This is what David was saying. He's saying good works are like a thermometer. You can look at them and you can tell what the temperature is. And if they're not showing anything, then you got a problem. But the problem's one with our faith. And if we, I mean, and, and, and the idea that you can do good works without faith, well, that's like trying to make an apple tree out of an oak tree just by going to Randall's and buying a bunch of apples and taping them on the tree. It doesn't make it an apple tree. It makes it an oak tree with apples taped on it. You've got to get the tree right. You put your faith in Jesus. And then the fruit grows from that. But if you're not being fruitful and you don't see the good works, then you've got a concern. Not because the world's short on apples. The concern is something's wrong with the tree. And that's what Luther's saying. And so Luther says there's no categories. He's right. Paul said it this way in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed. Two Greek words there. Word is logos. Deed is ergos. And in the Greek mind, when Paul's writing, everything's either word or deed. It's either logos or ergos. So Paul is saying, whatever you do, whether it's anything at all, word or deed, do it all. He's triply emphatic. Three different ways he's saying Everything, every cotton-picking thing, every single solitary thing. That's the way we translate it in Lubbock, okay? <laughs> Instead of whether in word or deed, it'd be every cotton-picking thing. Every single solitary thing. Let me say it three different ways. Whatever you do, whether it's eating, whether it's sleeping, whether it's walking, whether it's collecting garbage, whether it's working at a 7-Eleven, or stop-and-go is what we have now. Whatever you do, anything you do, you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, and it's holy, and it's right, and it's God's work in you. And you give thanks to God the Father through Him. There is no mundane and ordinary before God. Paul says the righteous shall live by faith. Live is part of it. Everything we do, we live by faith. Make sense? That's Luther. Next week, I'm telling you, this lesson kicks up a notch. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you so much that you've delivered us from sin, that you've delivered us from the ruler of this age, and that we have redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ. I thank you for the gift you have given us that we do not deserve. And it is my humble prayer that you will work in this class to inspire us to see how your hand has moved in history to minister to us today. I thank you for David Fleming. I thank you for everybody in here. It is my prayer that you will take everybody in here and bless them today. Make today an extra good day for them. In Jesus' name, amen.